or kids or finances or, I mean, just it just seems to be one attack, one struggle, one difficulty, one trial after another. And, um, and so I want to point out that I've not kind of been listening and chosen this to kind of as a response, but this is a response to where I think we often sometimes find ourselves in and things that, you know, I've, I've heard and prayed with you guys for and about and the difficulties and challenges that we all face in life. And what I've learned, I was even talking to Autumn in our trip as I'm just, was getting kind of introspective and contemplative and talking about, and, and she, she bring, my wife brings me back around and I said, I was like, you know what, I think fear is really at the root of all sin. And she's all, well, you need to probably think about that again, but... But, you know, truly, I think, I think fear is one of those things that does motivate us and not only into sin, but in, in a sense out of God's will so, or even prevents us from moving forward in God's will and the things that God has for us. And, and that last song that we sang about, you know, we have no really need to fear. We're a child of God and think about all the things that God's done for us. And in this psalm that we're going to read, that's a direct statement or, or knowledge that's being made to us about we don't have we don't really we don't need to fear don't fear look at these other things and so with that if you'll read if I'll, I'll read if you'll follow along in verse 1 of psalm 46 it says god is our refuge and our strength a very present help in t- in, in in trouble and i, I just want to quickly point out to you that you know paul and sherry you know paul's as as saying you're saying he's he's you guys know it. he's going through some really hard, difficult things right now, and it's just like boom, boom, boom. There doesn't seem to be any kind of immediate change in these circumstances that's going to give him relief. And he, as I was talking to him, he's all, he's all, he was telling me that, he, you know how Paul is, he's, he's all, I've just been messed up, and I won't go into all the, the way that Paul spoke and, and the things he said, but he was basically kind of mad at me because, and, and he knew I couldn't be here, but that I wasn't here. And, and um, because he felt like he needed someone, and he, I have that relationship with him, where he felt like if I was here, he would have been able to deal with those things differently or better. And I said, I, and I, I just said, man, you had other guys here, Paul. I just pointed out to him that you're surrounded by a whole team, a whole family. And, and really, as I studied through this psalm, it's just, again, it's often we... We can be, it, whether it's a husband or a wife or a pastor or a mentor or something like that, the truth of the matter is those people in our lives, they may be helpful, they may be reliable, they may be trustworthy, but they are not a very present help in time of trouble because sometimes they go on vacation to, to Europe for three weeks or you know what I mean? Or they're just, but God, our Father, our refuge and our strength is a very or an ever, as your translation, some other translations might read, he's an ever-present help in trouble. And, and that's a significant difference that we have to understand as we go through this, this kind of claim, this kind of statement that's being made about our God. Because the truth of the matter is, we can get in those situations, and even if we do have that guy or that gal around us, uh, the enemy comes to us and he goes, you're alone. You're alone. You're on, you're on your own. Nobody knows how you feel. Nobody knows what you're going through. You know, and, and, and 
and so there's this, there's this tendency to believe that and isolate, and, and the truth is, is God's ever-present in trouble, ever-present. And it just reminds us, that, you know, what can Paul writes in, in the book of Romans, what can separate us from God, from God's love for us? You know, and he goes into that whole thing. He's basically nothing. He's an ever-present help in trouble. And then verse 2, what does it say? Therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear. And, and there's a certain amount of, if this is true, if I know this, then this is the result, right? It's a cause and effect. And, and I love the practicality of that because that is true. If I, if I come to that understanding, that knowledge, that realization that God's ever-present in trouble, then, therefore, we'll not fear. We'll not fear. Even though, the psalmist goes on, even though the earth be removed and all the mountains and, 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 and the earth be removed and, and though the mountains be carried away in the midst of the sea, though, the, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. And, and I don't normally read this, but I want to point it out that there's three of these words, Selah, which means simply stop and meditate on that. Stop. Think about that. Meditate on that. Just don't blow on and go through it. Stop, meditate. And when we go through this psalm and we break it down, I'm going to break it down into these three things where we stop and meditate. And then he goes on, he says, verse 4, there is a river whose streams shall make glad or, or, or give joy. Um, the streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle, the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. And that, that last statement in verse 7 is, is really a, a, summer, a summation. It's a, um, a, a, it's a review of what he's just said. God is, as it says there, with us and and, and the God of Jacob is our refuge. Back to verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 through 7. There's truths being restated as you go, stop, meditate, Selah, think about that. Then in verse 8, he transitions in and he goes, come, because of that, come and behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease the, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire, and then verse 10, this, this very highly recognized verse, now in context of the psalm for you, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, and that speaks about the glorification of God, which real, is, and, and this is at the end because it's at the end in the sense that this is a reason or an explanation often that we don't always see or consider in the midst of the difficulties of the trials or the tribulations that we're facing because a lot of times we go, why God? Why? And what it, bottles, what, it, what it really boils down to, guys, the truth of the reality is here given to us and, and here's always an answer for why. Always. And some of the answers we're looking for in regards to why is this happening? Why is this happening to Sherry? Why is Paul having to go through this? Why in your own lives are you facing these certain difficulties and troubles that you feel sometimes you just don't have an answer for? And you're going, why God? Why me? The answer is at least always this. One thing. So that it says 
in verse 10, I will be exalted so that God will be exalted, so that God will be glorified among the nations, in other words, through our lives as we go through this. And he says, I will, I will, he says, be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, again, is a summation here with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, I just want to confess and profess and declare among uh, my, my fellow brothers and sisters here that your word is truth. It is life. And I'm so grateful, God, that you've given us this and put us in this place, Lord, where we can study the truth so we can know your will, so that we can be changed, so that we can, be, um, so we can have life in you and through you and know you and, and, God, know your plan and your will and your purposes for our lives. Find hope and comfort and encouragement, God, through the truths and the principles and the knowledge that we receive. I pray, God, that you would give us spiritual understanding and wisdom as we study your word together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, I want to kind of back up a couple of verses here. <laughs> Just kidding. I do want to draw your attention to 2 Kings chapter 18 and Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. You can turn there if you want. It's a lot probably to read as I go through this. But in light of this psalm, I want to point out that in recorded in those two passages of Scripture in 2 Kings and Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 is this record of an Assyrian king, this account of an Assyrian king by the name of Shennacherib. You ever heard of him? And um, he's the king of Assyria, and in those two passages of Scripture, um, he had come and he was threatening Jerusalem and he was planning on attacking it. And at that time, historically speaking, we're told that Hezekiah, who was a godly king, was a good king, that he was king over Judah, um, which was, as you guys know, the, the kingdom of Israel was divided at this time, and he was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And at that time, also, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered or defeated and invaded by uh, the Assyrian people, and they had been deported out of the land, like God had said would happen, because of their idolatry and their rebellion and their, spirit, their spiritual um, uh, adultery against God, that they would be taken out of land. They were deported to Assyria by Shennacherib's father initially, Shal Shalmanazar, eight years prior to the things that we're reading in these two passages of Scripture. Now, when Shennacherib had come to the king of Judah, to Hezekiah, he, he was, came sending a threatening message. He brought a threatening word to Hezekiah, specifically telling him of his plans to attack Jerusalem and calling for Hezekiah's unconditional surrender. And he had done this after he had already moved into the land of Judah. He had remained in the, in, in the, um, the northern kingdom for about four years and then decided he was going to come against the southern kingdom of Judah. And in doing so, he came in and he captured, it says, uh, many of the fortified cities in Judah. And Hezekiah had remained defiant to Shennacherib up to this point. However, with the Assyrian army advancing, Hezekiah got nervous. He got afraid. And he sent word to Shennacherib saying in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 14, he said, I've done wrong. I've done wrong. 
Turn away from me. He said, whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And it says that the king of Assyria then assessed Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 300 or in 30 talents of gold. And so in an attempt to ward off Shnacharib's advances, Hezekiah complied. He agreed to the demands and he took the silver and the gold, we're told, from the treasury of the king's uh, of the royal palace, but not only that, he, he didn't have enough, so he went ahead into the temple of God, to the very house of God, and he stripped all the gold and all the silver out of it and sent it to this pagan king. Now, I don't know about you, but at that point, if I was God, that would have been the end of Hezekiah. And, and that's, I think, what we, we, we kind of maybe think that God treats us or how we deserve to be treated by God in those times when we fail or respond in fear and make a bad decision, even a decision that is kind of like in the face of God, like this is here. But the king of Assyria, in light of this, he didn't follow through with his, his, his promise or his agreement, if you guys know the story. He um, didn't relent. Rather, what we're told is that he sent three guys to Hezekiah. Um, three of his most important people, he sent the supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a very large army to threaten and intimidate Hezekiah. And the Hebrew people were living behind the walls of Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, as they come and they start speaking to the leaders there, the leaders beg them, hey, don't speak to us in Hebrew, speak to us in Aramaic so that the people who are on the walls won't hear you and know what you're saying and be afraid. Let's just keep this between you and I. And then and, and they don't. They came in with this, this whole idea of intimidation. And, and that's important because when the enemy attacks us, it's important to know because when the enemy attacks us, isn't that exactly what he does? He wants to intimidate us. And, and, and in doing so, they spoke. This is, this is where they this was maybe just icing on the cake, so to speak, but I mean, God was going to do what he was going to do. But what they, they, in doing this, they ended up speaking against the Hebrew God and uh, the God of Israel, telling Hezekiah and the people as they even addressed them, specifically those men who were on the walls protecting the city. He, 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 he told them to surrender these, 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 mighty, these, these mighty men with their army outside, saying, your God cannot be trusted to deliver you from the mighty hand of the king of Assyria. You can't trust in your God. As a matter of fact, he goes into this whole diatribe about how there's been none of the gods of any of these people that have been great enough to stand up against this king and this army. So what makes your God any different? And, and listen, in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 1-7, through 7, it tells us, it says, When Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim to the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary of the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth. He sent them to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. And yes, this is Isaiah the prophet, the great prophet, <clears throat> wrote the, 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 the book of Isaiah, and, and they told him, this is what Hezekiah say, says, this is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. 
It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. He said, therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah then said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. The very first thing. Don't be afraid of what you heard, is what he says. Don't be afraid of what you heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria blasphemed me. Listen, God says, I'm going to put a spirit in him that when he, has, when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. And this is exactly what happened to Shnacharib. Exactly. And in verses 35 through 37, further in that chapter, it says, That night, that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp, which, by the way, was camped around the city of Jerusalem. And when the people got up the next morning, they were all dead. There, or excuse me, they were all the dead bodies. So Shnacharib, king of Israel, bulk camp and withdrew. And he returned to Nineveh and stayed there, just like God said through the prophet Isaiah, what happened. And then one day, while he was worshiping the temple of his God, not by coincidence that it was in this place, in his God, near Shock, the sons, his sons, better is what we're saying, Adriel Lamech and Sherazar, cut him down with the sword. Now, I point all this out and I go into the, uh, the detail of this in light of Psalm 46 because as you begin to study this out and you read through it, there are many people who believe that the historical background behind what we read in Psalm 46 is probably this very deliverance of God or the deliverance of Jerusalem by God, of these events that I just read to you from the Assyrians in the time or the day of Hezekiah the king. In fact, even though you can read in, in a lot of places that the sons of Korah have been given the authorship of this psalm or the credit for this psalm, there are many who believe that Hezekiah himself was the one who actually penned this or wrote this psalm, along with Psalms 47 and 48, which probably came out of the same historical count as we read in Psalm 47 and 48, this kind of celebration of God's victory over our enemies. Now, all of this comes together for us when we begin to see that in this psalm, the emphasis in Psalm 46 for us, listen, this is where you want to maybe kind of write these things down and how we're going to look at it, is the emphasis being put on the presence of the Lord. The emphasis is being put on the presence of the Lord with His people. And, and the difference it makes when we trust in Him and, and, and the changes, trust in Him with the changes and the difficulties of life that we face. Furthermore, the psalm focuses this, focus focuses us on the Lord and, and who He is or what He is to us when we put our trust in Him. And so in verses 1 through 3, the first thing we see here is, is God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the Lord, you know, or even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Now, in these first three verses, as we see this focus, we see that God, that, that, that we're being told that God is our refuge and our strength. Now, this word refuge 
if you were paying attention as we were reading through this or kind of maybe keying back on when I was reading it, this huge re- word refuge is used two other times in, in this psalm. First, once again, in verse 7, and then again in verse 11. And even though the word refuge is translated, as it's used three times here, it's translated with two different words, two different, from two different Hebrew words. The first word is, is makakia, and that's in verse 1. That's the, the makakia in Hebrew is the word for translated to refuge in verse 1, and that speaks specifically of a shelter of refuge, like a rock fortress. And, and the second time that it's translated, it's translated from the Hebrew word, a completely different Hebrew word, it's, it's mizgab. And, and, and that same word is translated twice, and once in verse 7 and then verse 11. And that, that is the description of a, uh, specifically, an inaccessible high place. And, and um, like a, uh, a, a, a fortified city on a hill or, or, or a, a tower kind of a thing. Yet, even though they're translated from two different words that, that give us more of an expounded understanding of this refuge that God is for us, what it's ultimately declaring to us is that God is dependable. God's a dependable place of refuge, a dependable place of protection for us. Yet, um, both of these words are ultimately declaring not only that He's a dependable place of refuge for us um, when everything seems to be in falling apart, but it helps us understand something clearly. It helps us to understand that God doesn't protect us, shelter us, refuge us in order to pamper us. It's not like you're going to a spa, you know, and you're going to get your little cucumbers on your eye and, oh, God's my refuge and, and I'm now being protected. That's, that's not it. It says that he's protecting us. There's this refuge going on, not to pamper us, but to strengthen us, to fortify us, to strengthen us. He shelters us so he can strengthen us to go back to life with all of its responsibilities and all of the dangers that we may face, even in the midst of the circumstances or difficulties or trials that we find ourselves in. He's the refuge so that he can strengthen us. And, and, and sometimes we think it's the other way around. You know, the shelter from the storm, the refuge from the storm. And, and God is that in that kind of a thing, but it's for the purpose of strengthening Preparing, equipping, fortifying. Sometimes we think that it's, it's for the, the purpose of delivering us so that we don't have to go through that. We can be set free from it. But you know as well as I do, that's not always the case. It's a strengthening so that, you, so that we are able and equipped to go through it. And he shelters us so that he can strengthen us. Now, in 2 Kings, one of the things that the Assyrian king had warned King Hezekiah and the Hebrew people, really in a mocking way, in, in this dialogue that he was having through his chief leaders, he, they said to him, he, 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 he said to him, do not depend upon Egypt for help. It's one of the things. He said, you can't trust in your God and don't go go knocking on Pharaoh's door and asking for help, especially in doing so at Sennacherib. He called Egypt, specifically said, a splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hands and wounds him if he leans on it. And that's really a a very graphic and descriptive illustration for us 
And there's application here, especially when we look at and consider that he, that Egypt in, in relationship to God's people, as it translates into our own lives, is a spiritual representation of the world. And, and, and often in our times of trouble, in the times of difficulty, we reach out to things other than God, the Egypt, and what it is for us is a splintered reed of a staff which will pierce us and wound us if we begin to lean on it for help or strength. And Shennacherib spoke of this because he knew that the nation of Israel was prone. They had this tendency, historically speaking, of turning to Egypt, turning to the world, turning to Pharaoh for help. In fact, this was something that they had previously done over and over again, even to the point that they had been rebuked by God for doing so when they should have turned to God and trusted in Him. And in Isaiah chapter 30, we read of this rebuke where God at one point had sent to them, He said, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for Pharaoh's protection to Egypt's shade for refuge, but Pharaoh's protection, he says, will be your shame, and Egypt's shade will be your disgrace." And the point is, is when we find ourselves in difficult or despairing situations, and I use that word intentionally because that's the kind of situation that's being described here, where you go, there is no hope. It's a place of utter despair that you are feeling. That's the extremity, the the extremeness of this kind of thing that's going on. And and when we find ourselves in difficult or despairing situation, there is this temptation, is there not, to turn to and to put our trust in someone or something else other than God. But as the psalmist declares in verse 1, God is the only one, like I already pointed out kind of in just some brief detail, He's the only ever one, God's the only only one who is always this ever-present help in our time of trouble. He's the only one. And truthfully, that's, that's, there's, that speaks of faithfulness, reliability. Yet, as we read through this, what we come to understand is that, is that, there's, this, this, there's, that there's an aspect of faith which in God works. In other words, God cannot work for us unless we trust Him. We have to respond in faith and trust. We have to come to Him. He's not going to force Himself upon us. If you want Egypt, God's going to let you have Egypt. And then you know what you'll do? You're going to come to him like a little kid, like Hezekiah, who went and stripped the temple. Going, I got a splinter in my hand, Dad. And he's not going to go, well, you dummy, you, lint on, you, you put your hand on that broken reed. You know, it's not how God is. But, you know, you, you get the picture there for, for it. And, 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 and there's this God, there's this, this, we have to trust. Now, I love this word trouble, which is used here. It's the Hebrew word sarat, because and I love it because it's used to describe, specifically intentionally, it's used to describe a person who's, it, the, the words that are used there is a, is a person who is in a tight place, or literally a person who's been placed in a corner and is unable to get out. And, and I love this word because I think it describes something that we've all felt in those times, a place that we've all been in when we realize that there's nothing within our earthly reach or in our earthly understanding that can help us. Nothing. 
However, the admonition given to this when this occurs, look at it, the admonition that we read there when this occurs is, again, do not be afraid. And why are we told that? Because that's what we do. We get, well, we get afraid. But God says, don't be afraid. Or more specifically, he says, we will not fear because God is the ever-present help. Cause and effect. We will not fear because God is our ever-present help. He's faithful. He's reliable. He's always there. He never forsakes us. And when the Assyrian officials came, when the Assyrian officials came and threatened Jerusalem, telling them that they were going to attack and destroying to them, remember I point out the first thing that the prophet Isaiah said as God spoke to them through the prophet Isaiah in light of this was, this is what the Lord says, chapter 19, verse 7 of 2 Kings, do not be afraid of what you've heard. And here, when the psalmist makes his declaration to not fear, he goes on to say, even if the earth is removed or if the mountains were to be carried into the sea, there is no need to fear. And I begin to think about that and I go, why does he have to ramp it up? Isn't it even already bad enough? And, and you know what these are? These are what-if statements. And I, I always, I love counseling with people and, and kind of saying, you know what, let's not worry about the what-ifs. Because we already know what what is, and that's bad enough. But the truth is, is, it's the what ifs, right? And I believe that the psalmist refers to these other things that seem so much more terrifying than what really is going on. Because the fact of the matter is, is when we are in these tight situations, when we're in trouble, when we're stuck in a corner and we know no other way out, is that when there's no hope of escape, you know what happens? Um, Even though if we're not able to imagine a way out or figure out how it's going to be any better. We're, we're, we're usually pretty good about imagining how the problem can get worse. <laughs> I don't know any way out of this. But, but, you, but you go, but it can get a whole lot worse. We don't have any problem imagining that, figuring out those what ifs. And sometimes even when we say, I don't know how this can get any worse, we've already have 10 other things going in our mind of how it can get worse. But if we conclude that God is our refuge, listen, that's at the Selah here, meditate on. If we can conclude and know that God is our refuge, our strength, the ever-present help in our time of trouble, then we must come to the, 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 the conclusion that even when the circumstances change, God and the promises that he makes to us will never change. God doesn't change, and the promises he made doesn't change. In light of this, the psalmist goes on and declares that because God is our refuge in the uncertainties of life, because, listen guys, because God is our refuge in the uncertainties of life, He is also in relationship to us our joy, a river of gladness. And he says in verse 4 through 7, he says, There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And in these next verses, we're given this picture, and, and it's a shifting, actually, of an illustration for us as it shifts to the city of Jerusalem, or as it says in verse 4, the city of God. Probably to the place, as we look at this in the potential context of what we read in Kings and, and, and read in the book of Isaiah, probably to the place where the Hebrew people were confined within the walls of the city because of the Syrian army who were outside surrounding them. But even though they were surrounded by their, by their enemies, this declaration is that there was a river whose streams would flow in the midst of this city and the circumstances that would make glad 
the city or the inhabitants of God. Now, the fact of the matter is when you begin to think about this practically or historically, so to speak, um, many ancient cities that were walled at this time, they were built on rivers or streams that flew through them. And the reason why that is because if they came under attack and then a siege warfare was laid up against them, they would have a water supply even though they couldn't get out of the city. But this was not the case for Jerusalem. There was no stream. There was no river flowing through, literally speaking, Jerusalem. And, and even though Hezekiah had, he was the one who had built an underground water system that connected the spring of Gishon with the, 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 the spring of Gishon in the, in the valley of the, in the Kidron Valley with the pool of Siloam that was within the city, now making water available to the inhabitants of Jerusalem in case they were locked up in a situation like this. <clears throat> this was not the streams of water that the, the psalmist was speaking about here. This was not the streams of water that the psalmist was referring to that would make the people glad. Oh, Shanachrib's out there, his armor's out there, but we're okay, we got water, we got food, we're good. It was according to verse 5, look, Why? Did they have gladness? Why could they have joy? It was because God was in the midst of the city. Because God was with them. He would be their river whose streams of life-giving water would help them would, would help them and make it so they would not be moved. In light of this, it's important for us to, to, to see that the gladness or joy that we are so desperately looking for in the midst of the circumstances, the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties, it does not come as a result of what God does or as a result of what God doesn't do or as a result of what God provides. That's not the basis for the gladness or the joy. Rather, the joy is the result of God being with us. That's what we're being told here. It's a result of God being in our midst with God with them. And, and, and it's important for us to realize this because the fact of the matter is, I don't know about you, but I'm, I, I've learned this all too often, not, through, not just through the things I've gone through, but the things that you go through as well, is that God's help always doesn't come in a way that we want or in a way that we expect. I very clearly pray, hey God, I think you need to do this in this situation, and he lots of times just doesn't do that. Yet if we keep our focus on the fact that God who loves us and is for us is always with us, then we can always be made glad as we draw near to Him and put our trust in Him no matter what the circumstances and no matter what the quote-unquote help is that we receive from God. So God is our refuge and our strength. He is our joy because He is with us. And ultimately, as is declared in these last verses, and this may sound a little redundant, but think about it, God is our God. That's what we're being told here. God is our God. Not just our God, but He is our God, and He will be glorified. Look at verse 8. Come and behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to see to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, again, is with us. 
the God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, in the case of the Assyrian army, we read back in 2 Kings that that it says, remember it says, I emphasize it, that on that very night that followed the threats that had been made against the king Hezekiah and the Hebrew people, it says that the angel of the Lord attacked on that very night. And that next morning in the fields surrounding Jerusalem, we're told as you read through, I didn't read it to you, but there lay did 185,000 of these men that had surrounded the city of God. And even though there, there was no tell in the account of any kind of battle, it wasn't like the people were inside the, the, the city and, and they heard this massive battle going on outside, even though there was no sounds, no tell, no account of any kind of battle. That's important because I've said this before, and I know others have said it, but if you, can, if you can go through something and explain how it got done, then God didn't do it. You know what I'm saying? When you, get done, when you get on the other side of it and you go, I don't know how that happened. That's because God did it. There's no earthly explanation for the thing that took place. God did it. And that's, that's the point that's being made here. God did it. And even though there was no tell of any battle being fought that night, the angel of the Lord left that evidence. What was the evidence? 185,000 dead bodies there in the fields outside of the walls of Jerusalem. God left that evidence, the quote-unquote, as we look in verse 8, the work of the Lord. That's what it was. 185,000 dead bodies was the evidence of the work of the Lord, which is, mentioned verse, which is mentioned there. He left it behind in order to encourage the faith of people. God let them see that to encourage them, to give them strength in their faith. And whether or not, I'm just going to say, whether or not this is the same works of the Lord that's mentioned here in verse 8 as the psalmist speaks to, whether it's not the same thing that we read about in 2 Kings or not, the, the bottom line is, or the fact of the matter is, is when we put our trust in God and take hope and comfort in the fact that He is with us, that He is His refuge, we too will be called, this is so cool, we too will be called, as verse 8 says, to come and behold the works of the Lord. And then you can come on Wednesday and go, let me tell you about the works of the Lord. Let me tell you what God's doing. You see, the point is, is the battle which we don't often get to see and the victory that we freely receive is the Lord's. And He fights it in a way that He sees fit. It's the Lord's. Our job, guys, is to trust the Lord. Our job, and I use that word job loosely, but our job is to lean not on our own understanding. Our job is to come and behold the works of the Lord. In other words, as declared, as is declared in verse 10, our job is to be still and know that He is our God. Now, when I researched what that means and I broke it down in the Hebrew, what this basically means or what we're literally being told here is to get your hands off of it. That's, that's literally means, get your hands off of it. Relax. To stop trying to manage and control our lives and let God, who is our God, who we confess to be our God, who we profess to be our God, let Him be our God so that we might be His servants. 
We can't have one without the other. You can't. In light of all this, because I ran out of time, we need to keep in mind that the fact is that God allows us to get into tight places. Guys, the answer for why again, at the very least, is so that our faith will grow and so that He will be exalted. He is our God and we are His servants. Father, thank you, God, for the truths found in your word. Thank you for the encouragement and maybe even, God, some, some clear, concise answers to some of the things that we've all been going through as we've been searching. Lord, let these truths comfort us and, and let us take peace. Let us find peace in our hearts, not in the circumstances, not in the result, but in the fact that you're our refuge, you're our strength, our joy is in you because you're with us and that you're our God. You're our God. And there's nothing greater, nothing more wonderful, nothing more highly exalted than you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.